welcome to episode 7 of This Month in Security for January of 2023. I'm your host, Aubrey King, and this month I'll be joined by Aaron Brailsford. I did ask it to write me an, uh, an episode of This Week in Security, though, and it did a pretty passable job at that. So, David Warburton. What we considered secure, what we considered good practice 10 years ago, even a year or two ago, Probably isn't true anymore. And we've got a special guest, Brian McHenry. There's no firewall I can put in place between uh, an attacker who's going to social engineer a customer service rep or a, an IT uh, operations person. There's no, there's no firewall for that. We'll be talking to Brian about his involvement with Security B-Sides NYC and a little bit more about the technologies that he's been interested in over time. And we'll talk about all the latest news in the security community for this month. So strap on those earbuds and get ready for this month in security. Thanks for taking the time to talk to us today, Brian. I really appreciate it. Hey, Aubrey. Uh, always good to see you. Uh, one of my oldest and dearest friends here at F5. And uh, if any way I can do do something to support you and help you out and uh, and and support our community, uh, I'm always there for it. Awesome. Well, we love community first. That's that's really the way we go. Um, so there were a couple of things that um, I wanted to talk to you about a little bit with respect to not just kind of what you do for your day-to-day job, but kind of a little bit in terms of uh, of your past experience. I mean, you've been in the field now, technology for how long would you say? A little over 25 years now, you know, get, and getting that, up there. That's up. Yeah. That's got, you've got a, a, a lot of good experience there. Uh, if you want to kind of give the community an, an overview for the listeners out there that might not know you, um, like yeah. F5ers might. Yeah. Uh, so I'm, I'm in what I, in, into a couple of years into what I call the third act of my career. Um, currently leading product management for our web app and API security solutions. And that's across portfolio, distributed cloud, Nginx, big IP. Uh, so when it comes to WAF, DDoS, API security, that's um, that's my thing. Uh, and how do I come to lead all, all this part of our pro- portfolio is uh, I spent the first act of my career uh, in IT operations. Uh, start, got my start like a lot of people in desktop support, doing a little bit of software validation actually as well. And uh, moved on up to knock and sock type roles. That's when I first got exposed to big IP and F5. And that presented the opportunity uh, to become a sales engineer uh, and join our technical sales team where I spent you know the bulk of my 15 years at F5, either functioning as an SE, uh, supporting our customers and our accounts, and then as a solution architect, touring most of the Western hemisphere, uh, talking about web app firewall, talking about SSL and the importance of uh, encrypt decrypt as well as DDoS. And, you know, from there I moved into roles, you know, more into, you know, security strategy uh, for our, our sales team, as well as participating in our acquisitions of Shape and Volterra and ThreatStack. Uh, and that's where I sort of got the product strategy itch. And now, you know, here I am in that third act I was talking about. Um, and it's a, it's a real honor and a privilege to be able to lead the, uh, the, the product teams and the engineering teams on this strategy to advance technology that that I've you know come to depend on not as a customer but also as a you know an eng- engineer in the field for F5 and so this is just a, a huge huge privilege to be in this in this position um, to take everything I've learned to date and, and apply it to our strategy which um, always with me is customer first. That's uh that that's that's neat. I've I've loved watching kind of your 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 rise and and kind of watching your path as you sort of navigated through our organizations here. Now, with your current role, you are focused on WAP primarily. Is that mm-hmm. that is correct? Right. Right. Yeah, yep. Okay. So with with that in mind, I guess um, one of the things that has has kind of fascinated me over the past six months working on this podcast. Um, is the the talk about guidance and things like that. I, I don't, you know, I, I think some people might find that to be a little bit boring, but for me, it's one of those things that over time, you and I have talked about kind of how the sausage is made um, in, a, in a product organization and what that looks like from different perspectives. Now, this is one perspective that, that I've never even contemplated. How does um, you know, a product organization kind of consume that sort of guidance like you would find from CISA 
Um, and is it really kind of different, you know, I guess, um, manufacturer to manufacturer or even uh, department to department? Um, uh, you know, so so product management is a is a very inter- interesting discipline, and the and the closer I, I got to work with it in my prior role in, in technical sales, uh, the more I became to appreciate it, and, and it's obviously a part of why I chose to to go into this field directly. Um, it's a uh, part sales engineer, you know, the, you know, our product manager is, you know, customer facing person who's, uh, you know, able to communicate effectively to product, to customers, as well as to, you know, our field sales team, you know, help to, to convey the message in a compelling way. Uh, they also spend a lot of time talking to analysts, uh, really, you know, encourage my team to engage with the analyst community to understand, to get an aggregate view of what they're hearing from customers and also an outside view, not an F5 centric view. Often when you talk to an F5 customer about F5 uh, solutions and technology, you, you get a bit of a colored uh, view of, of how, how well we're doing. So um, we engage with, with analysts quite a lot to get that viewpoint uh, but also, you know, looking, monitoring the standards, monitoring whether it's recommendations from CISA, you know, executive orders, NIST frameworks and updates, uh, compliance like PCI DSS, you know, SOX, uh, SOC2, uh, all, the, all those things, like they all uh, factor into how our product managers, you know, develop a strategy that's going to help, you know, really meet our customers where they're going, not where they are now, but really where they're going. And that's the trick is trying to predict where uh, our customers are headed because uh, not always, you don't always know that, right? Not even if you ask a customer directly, they don't always know where they're going to be or they think they know and, and things change around us constantly. So it is a bit of a, you know, a fortune teller's job in a way. Um, <laughs> if you're a Marvel fan, it's a Tony Stark futurist kind of thing. Um, so, so, you know, you, you're wearing a lot of different skill sets as a product manager and, uh, you know, you're also handling escalations around the products that you own. So you're, you're right there in the front lines, knowing what makes our customers unhappy as well as what makes them happy. Um, so, so it's a, it's a really, uh, a, a challenging discipline. Uh, but I think, you know, the people that do it really well are, are folks that really, you know, end up driving innovation into the products and, and creating, you know, what I like to call customer delight. Um, when you hear a customer say, hey, I couldn't have solved this problem without, you know, F5. I think your technology is, is making my life easier. That's a, that's a win, uh, whether you're, you know, an SE, whether you're, you know, in support or, or in fact, you know, a product manager, you hear that kind of thing. That's why we do the job. That's why we go out there and, and try to build things that help you address uh, whatever your compliance needs are, whatever, you know, your, your risk mitigation strategy is, uh, and, and really try to help you anticipate, you know, emerging standards and whether that's, you know, around compliance or, you know, just changes in the technology or threat landscape. So it sounds to me like it's really just, I guess, almost ingrained in the conversation already. Like it doesn't even need to be, you know, have a point person or anything like that. It's, it's already talked about. Um, yeah. Because that's what the customer is, is driving as well. So exactly. It's, it comes from, you know, all those, those inputs come from all the different uh, uh, engagements that product managers go on. It's, it's from SEs, it's from participating in standard bodies. It's from analyst engagements, but, you know, first and foremost, always from customer uh, engagements, but but all those things, you know, fuse together uh, into into what ends up becoming uh, most important in our product strategy. Cool. Okay, now switching gears like completely. Uh, one of these other things that uh, that I have seen you do through time um, is you, you were the first guy that I ever heard say B sides, and I remember when you said that, I went, "What? What is that? I don't. I'm not sure what that is." Yeah. And now. B-Sides is B-Sides, and uh, we even have one up here in the frozen tundra of Rochester, New York. So um, I was wondering kind of how, I guess, what drew you to B-Sides in the first place? Because you you, sort of knew it before it came up, was my perception. And then, you know, how has that journey gone through the years? You've been involved for a long time. Yeah, yeah. I got involved uh, back in 2014 or so. Um, hard to pin down exactly. Uh, you know, I, I was on, you know, Twitter, I was doing a lot of talks at different conferences, uh, in, in my role at the time. 
uh, and at, at times lamenting my inability to get my talks accepted at things like RSA and Black Hat and stumbled across the B-Sides community, you know, actually crossing paths with uh, Jack Daniel on, on Twitter. So if you don't follow Jack on Twitter, uh, recommend it. He's, a, he's an interesting follow and a guy that's been in the industry for a, quite a long time. He's one of the founders of Security B-Sides and, and, and it was founded and I'm not sure when when they started off the top of my head, but it was founded around that notion of, hey, I had this really great idea, great talk, but it didn't get accepted by RSA, didn't get accepted by Black Hat. And the first B-Sides, I forget if it was, I think it was Las Vegas first. There was a B-Sides Las Vegas, which was, hey, all the talks that you, you didn't get accepted into Black Hat or DEF CON, we'll take those talks. Uh, we'll, and sometimes there are things that are a little bit off the beaten path and don't really fit into you know, what those big conferences are looking for. And the same thing with B-Side San Francisco as sort of the the B-Side to the A-Side, which is, you know, the RSA conference. RSA, yeah. And so that's, you know, really the the, the initial ethos is, is creating a, a, a hyper-local conference, uh, most often, you know, offered for free. You know, so no, no registrations fully sponsor funded. So I thought, wow, this is such a great thing and we don't have that in in the new york metro area where i where i live in new jersey and so i you know i reached out to jack daniel and so 90 percent of doing anything in this life is don't be afraid to reach out to that person that you think might be um you know too busy or too important uh you know jack is like this infosec luminary and he was very quick to respond say hey this is how you get started gave me the the quick getting started it took several years uh for me to um, get security besides New York City, NYC off the ground. It was working with a couple of guys, Brad Antanovich uh, works, I believe at Cisco these days and another guy by the name of Glenn Edwards. The, so the three of us all came to the, the B-Sides organization independently and, and they connected us together. And so we, we kind of uh, tirelessly, you know, uh, push the effort forward as the sort of three co-founders and, Eventually, in 2016, John Jay College is a, a big criminal justice college. Uh, you know, we got a contact there, a Dr. Lovely, who's uh, the one, one of the, was one of the professors back there in 2015, 2016, and he said, "Yeah, we'll give you, we'll, we'll we'll donate the space." So we were able to offer a free conference in Manhattan uh, in a large space uh, for, for everybody, and and that was that was such a win. Um, and it, you know, and then 2017, we had to kind of take the year off. Everybody got a little busy. Uh, I think, I think one of the, one, one of the guys had, had, a, had his first kid and I think I got promoted and another guy moved jobs and then, but then we brought it back in 2018. Then, uh, we, we lost our contact at John Jay college, uh, in 2019 and then 2020 came, we all know what happened then. Oh, yeah. uh, and now we're coming out of it again, and I'm I'm not as involved as I once was. Uh, there's a whole new new crew, new school, next gen uh, t- taking the torch from from uh, me and the original founders. But we're gonna have another event in April. Uh, John Jay is back on board to host us. They have such a great space there, and uh, you know they have a you know as a criminal justice uh, criminology type of school focus, uh, have a good cyber program. Uh, so really, you know, great synergy there of of who our sponsor is and. Uh, Really excited to see, you know, with another generation of folks uh, carrying it forward. Really, the the, the, impetus, the other impetus behind getting involved when I did was uh, information security as a profession has given so, so much to me. It, it's created a career and a, and a prosperous lifestyle and, and, and also, you know, a way to, to, to create technology that makes the Internet a safer place, uh, which is, you know, really what I'm, I'm lucky enough to be a part of. And... You know, I think about how hard it is to get into this industry, and I, I didn't really have anything other than sort of stumbling my way forward in various IT jobs and uh, to, to really kind of embrace information security as my focus. And I think, you know, what can we do to give back to the community, to create that opportunity for others? And so that's really, you know, one of the ethos of security B-sides is to be more accessible. Uh, you know, talked about getting your talks accepted, but also make it free. So I don't need to pay for a thousand dollar conference ticket. Uh, so making this industry more uh, accessible and giving people the opportunity to network and learn. So, 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 you know, humbled to be a part of a team that's got this going in New York City, uh, where it's hard to do things for free and accessibly. And, and so this, you know, uh, I, I'll, I'll certainly leave a legacy at F5 behind, but, you know, I've been here for 15 years, but uh 
uh, I think the legacy that I, that in the industry I'm, I'm most proud of is, is hopefully Security B-Sides New York chapter uh, goes on to, to continue to be successful in years to come. And um, that that's something that, that now happens and creates opportunity for others. Um, because this is such a great field. There's so much good you can do in the world by being involved, you know, matter how, no matter how, whether you're a programmer, a coder, you're an attacker, you're a defender, uh, you're a sales engineer, um, you're in the you know, product development, whatever, whatever you want to do, there's lots of ways to help make the Internet a safer place. It's just about getting in the door and, and seeing that cybersecurity is a, a field for all of us. Yeah, you know, it's uh, it, it, it's interesting. I, I just, coming out of the pandemic, right, we're starting to do more events and things like that. And one of these things that I noticed, you know, the, the reason why I ended up bringing up B-Sides, really, B-Sides Rock showed up from out of nowhere. I mean, we haven't seen, I haven't seen anything out of them in, in a long time on socials, but um, I, like so many other people, have been exploring Mastodon. And, uh, you know, on Infosec Exchange, they, they were showing B-Sides Rock. It came up in my area. So, uh, it just so happens that one of my, you know, one of the influencers that I follow is going to be at the next meeting. They're flying in, and um, so I'm going to go and 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 check that. I'm very excited to 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 really take part in it. So, yeah, the, our first B sides. Uh, one of our keynotes was a guy by the name of Chris Westopel, who was at Veracode for some time. is one of the original guys in the in the old school hacking crews from you know Loft and and those folks. Uh, and so, you know, got to meet him and he gave a talk that year that, that really, that 2016, that really changed my, my view of the, the world. He talked about shifting from the military paradigm of attack and defense and, you know, building higher walls and really talking about it from safety. So you heard me say, make the internet a safer place a bunch of times that that's like my, my motto, if you will, you know, what, what drives me as a professional and uh, that's really comes from Chris, you know, well, at Weld Pond on, on Twitter. You know, so Chris was Sokol's talk there. He talked about move to a, a notion of, of safety, right? It's, uh, he talked about the, the, the analogy of a toaster, right? A toaster, you know, is inherently an unsafe thing, right? You take a, a flammable thing, a piece of bread, you stick it in, you uh, turn it on some heat, uh, heating elements, and then you hope it doesn't catch fire and, and toast it just right. And we take it for granted that that's a safe thing to do. Uh, we don't yet have that luxury on the internet. Uh, sharing our inter- information, whether it's for personal or business reasons, is an inherently unsafe act on the internet. Uh, and it's our you know, job as practitioners, whatever role we play, to try to make it a, a more safe by default and the, and the threat and the risk is, is the exception. And, and so he really changed my mind about how to think about this, of this attack and go away from this military attack and defense paradigm and get into this internet, you know, safe use paradigm and making it, you know, safe and easy for, you know, everyone to be on the internet and, and not have to be a tech savvy person hovering over links and being concerned about phishing and malware and gosh, whatever else. There's something to be said for usability too. That's got to yep. say that. Yeah, yeah. Security is only as good as it is usable. That's right. What is that? The first the first tenet of good security is availability, I think, is what yeah. I used to yeah. say. All right. So the last thing that I, I had kind of as a as a uh, an in-depth question here for you is that you, you've been involved in application security for as long as I've known you. And you've been building solutions for application security for as long as I've known you. You helped me figure out how to do it. You know, that was uh, you, you were, I think, taught me some of my first stuff on ASM way back. So. With that in mind, looking at the architectures from back when I started 12 years ago, you know, that we used to, we used to look at these, you know, giant pairs of, of WAFs, sometimes wedged inside firewalls and whatnot. The architecture is very different today. So I kind of wanted to get an idea from you, um, h- how you saw, you know, that change in architecture, what may have driven that and where might we go in the future with, uh, with WAP architectures? I mean, are you, you've got to be thinking forward with your role, I'd imagine. So. I figured I'd I'd ask and see if you could reveal. Yeah, absolutely. So so our tagline for for our security uh, vision is securing apps and APIs everywhere. And and let me pick that apart a little bit. Securing part is obvious. Apps and APIs. And so why would we say both? Well, there's a notion of a web application, but there's also notion of an API. And, and increasingly, we're moving to more API-centric models of delivering applications and less, you know, a traditional web app that's, you know, server resident. 
so so really drawing that yeah you know, that 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 clear line that we were very inclusive of the of every type of application architecture, uh, and then you know really the most key word in that tagline is everywhere. Applications, you know, to your point, Aubrey, completely distributed, completely variable uh, in terms of how they're architected. Uh, things that were sitting behind, you know, a pair of, you know, F5 application delivery controllers back in the day probably are still sitting there. Um, new apps may not be getting spun up behind that environment. And you need a you need fit for purpose uh, technologies. And my mantra is is to meet the customer where they are. Uh, that's how we achieve that that's availability of security everywhere. And so that's why we make things available on Nginx uh, in as uniform a fashion as we do on big IP, as we do on distributed cloud. And, and so some, some of this is the evolution of architectures, right? So what's driving that? Well, uh, things like Kubernetes get popular because it enables me to move faster and do think complex things in a highly uh, high velocity fashion, high, high, you know, continuous delivery models and so forth. So we adopt these architectures because there's an underlying business benefit. And in most cases, this is because I can move fast as a developer and deliver this stuff. So our, our goal has got to be to be part of that architecture earlier on in the development lifecycle so that we don't slow down the business and in fact become an enabler. Uh, so that's things like our Nginx app protect plugins for that architecture. Uh, but then you mentioned usability, right? So there's the usability of security from a consumer or from an end user point of view, right? Like how good is my password manager in terms of, you know, does it lock down all my passwords? Yeah, it does a good job, but it's a pain in the ass to use on multiple different platforms, you know, mobile, desktop, et cetera, then I'm never going to use it. And, and so similarly, you know, that, that usability notion exists on the operator administrator side. And that's, you know, what's really driving a lot of our focus on uh, distributed cloud, you know, delivering as a service. You know, a lot of our customers would love to deliver advanced WAF policies for every single app in their environment that that it naturally sits behind a big IP, but they don't have enough people to operate a complex uh, appliance-based firewall without firewall. So by offering it as a service, we, we're, we're trying to take a lot of the complexity out make it, you know, something that's widely available, you know, regardless of your architecture, if you, you front end it with a SaaS, it doesn't, the architecture becomes less important if you're comfortable with using uh, SaaS based services and, and proxying your traffic through our platform. Uh, so that's a, you know, a way that we're, we're affecting usability and, and trying to keep up with the speed of business as well and, and make sure that we're not slowing anybody down in their, their, goal to publish better application and API experiences for their customers, uh, but with security built in uh, to the design from the earliest phase possible. So, um, you know, speed and usability are really driving the way we do things and how we bring our portfolio of application security solutions together. Thanks so much for coming on the show to talk to us, Brian. It's always great to share your perspective with the community. Moving on. We're going to dive right into the news from January. Talking about, uh, about the breach updates, there were a significant number of breaches this month, Aaron, yeah? Oh, yeah. Granted, one of the ones goes back to December, but considering the news just keeps coming out, I'm going to put it in January along with all of the others. So LastPass, obviously, we can't really talk about breaches without talking about LastPass. But CircleCI, which is um, CICD management system, were breached, and that included people's secrets that were stored in, in Circle CI. Royal Mail, the UK Postal Service, has had a cybersecurity incident, which almost certainly started with some kind of a, a breach into the organization. It's probably ransomware that is stopping them from sending mail outside of the UK right now. In fact, we've all in the UK been asked not to post anything overseas because it won't go there. We also saw the TSA's no-fly list breached and leaked out of a feeder airline in the US. And that was another breach of cloud-stored data uh, that Kyle talked about in uh, This Week in Security a, a week or so ago. And I think, you know, the, the news doesn't stop, right, of these breaches. Um, after the, the This Week in Securities that we're kind of talking about in this month in security, in the last day or so, GitHub have reported that they've had a breach and that's resulted in the code signing certificates 
for two of GitHub's apps being stolen. They have no evidence that those code signing certificates have been used, but that they were stolen. So GitHub desktop for Mac and Atom applications, they're essentially being uh, new versions rolled out with new signing certificates. It's, yeah, the, the news of breaches just doesn't stop. <laughs> yeah, it would appear that way. And it's funny you mentioned the um, the Circle CI one. That's something I... You know, I've been doing a little bit of research into uh, one of the new OWASP projects, which is the top 10 for CICD pipelines. They actually have a uh, a project for that. I don't think it's an official project, but it's at least in uh, in in focus at the moment. And that's one of those things that they that they really talked about was, you know, hey, you can really breach uh, software pretty. I shouldn't say pretty easily, but it's a good time, I guess, if that's your aim. Um, to really try and get in on the pipeline level so that you can continuously reinfect and 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 spread out as you go. You know, I think I think pretty soon we're going to be having a a little bit of a snippet on on the OWASP CICD top ten. I'm not sure when we're going to be doing that, but we we should probably take a moment to mention it on the show too at some point. Yeah, I think LastPass and Circle CI and and I suppose the the GitHub breach, they're all about sensitive secret information being stolen, right? Passwords, uh, API access keys or, or AWS keys, tokens, sorry. And that's come into focus at least in the last month. I think uh, CISA released an article on knowing where your secrets are. And that's that's a big challenge, right? We, we store secrets all over the place because we have distributed systems that are living in in the cloud and on-prem, you know, hybrid systems. Everything needs to talk to other systems and you secure that access using secrets. But they've got to be stored somewhere because the human isn't pumping them in. And that's a, you know, it's, it, it is relatively easy to breach an organization because usually soft, fleshy things, humans, Right, the, the the way into to most orgs, and once you're in, stealing the secrets just lets you pivot across all of the infrastructure, exfiltrate whatever you want. I think um, I think your point, Aaron. It's what what really fascinates me from a security point of view. Now, I like to kind of get geeky and nerd out about crypto stuff and all the latest technologies, but actually, so much of security, like probably the most pivotal part of security, is trust. Really, everything that we do from certificates to password managers ultimately always requires some element of trust between various parties. That's what it all underpins it. You know, if, if it literally was just person A and B, you know, Alice and Bob talking to each other and there were no other third parties, you wouldn't necessarily need as much trust. You wouldn't need the same kind of infrastructure and reliance. But as soon as you involve a single third party and then we're on the internet, we're involving millions of third parties. You know, we rely on all these kind of protocols and solutions and vendors to provide that element of trust. Another one thing I'm being asked a lot about at the moment is, is password managers following the last pass breach. And there have been plenty of news articles recently looking at how Bitwarden has, you know, the, the way they kind of have the number of hashes for, for storing users' master passwords. There have been Safari and other kind of password managers. You know, they've all had an increasing element of, of time by researchers spent on them. And we put as users, you know, whether we're using this for enterprise use, whether it's a personal use, a huge amount of trust into these organizations to hold our really like probably the most important secrets, not just our passwords. You know, for many of us, we're storing credit card details in our password vaults. We're storing social security numbers and other really private information in these kind of secure notes that you can put along with your passwords. So there's a huge amount of trust that goes into it. And ultimately, what do we decide to do as users, right? Do we kind of figure out that actually... The risk isn't worth it. It's not we can't trust these third parties or do we find some way to kind of mitigate that risk and, and ultimately decide that we have no choice but to trust these third parties and to do what we can to, as I said, mitigate that risk. I find it interesting that we've got also shared cloud storage as kind of a theme in some of these attacks. Um, and the funny thing that it makes me think about is, uh, especially as we watch LastPass just snowball uh, and become just a, a huge mess. It's not the same kind of security threats that we had when I started working for F5. I mean, you think back to 10 years ago and the kind of the biggest stuff that we really had was, you know, brute force, 3DOS. These are kind of, but now some of the, some of these techniques are, are, are really, 
really very interesting. I, I'm curious to see what happens with LastPass and if we're going to see an end to this story at, at, at any point soon. You know, breaches are inevitable, right? And I don't really cast aspersion on LastPass. I'm sure they were doing everything they could to prevent what happened happening. What I think is commendable in reading the disclosure, right? They said, hey, we got owned, you know, they, they owned it. But hey, we did everything uh, right, uh, not just about setting up a good, strong perimeter, right? Like they, they, it, which ultimately got breached. You know, they did that, but they didn't say that, you know, and what we see in a lot of these breaches is that the perimeter gets breached and then the, the uh, vendor, whoever it is that got owned, acts surprised when sensitive data then is, is compromised. It's, well, you got to plan for a, an already breached state. And, th- and a lot of people don't necessarily always understand the context of that. Um, what is meant when we say that? Well, what is meant when we say that is like, assume you're already breached, assume you're going to get breached. What happens then? How do you reduce the risk uh, of the impact uh, that happens then? And and so all of the default configurations that, that LastPass has been providing since I think 2018, make it so that it's going to take literal millions of years uh, for someone to brute force hack any of these vaults that got compromised. And so that that's a, you know really just a, a great example of you know, what a defense in depth architecture like looks like, what a assumed breach management and response plan looks like. So really, you know, hey, it sucks that it happened, uh, but don't let this stop you using password managers. And in fact, don't let it stop you using LastPass if that's the one that you got used to and you like and you've integrated it into the ways that you work. If it works for you and you like it, keep using it because you've got a, a security vendor in LastPass that honestly hats, hats off to you guys. You got the worst possible thing happened, but you did all the right things to make sure that the impact to your users and, and to the data that you were safeguarding uh, was minimal. So really, you know, you can take a, a negative slant and slam them for it, but I can only say that, you know, they, they did the right things in my in, in, from what I know. I think what will be interesting for me is seeing, and I really can, I mean, I've been a, a staunch last past user for I want to say decades, you know, I wasn't certainly uh, customer number one, but I was on pretty early on and have, you know, stuck with them uh, with kind of various kind of breach, either breaches or security vulnerabilities that were discovered in, say, the browser extensions for years. Because ultimately, I kind of believe in that zero trust, that zero knowledge kind of architecture, whereby as long as I'm the only one that has my master passwords, uh, in theory, People can steal my encrypted blob of passwords. They're not going to do anything with it because it's encrypted. And as long as the crypto is good, we're fine. Of course, the problem is once you realize that actually other elements, there are other aspects to it. It's not the pure crypto necessarily that's a problem. And there are unfortunately questions as to the crypto use in LastPass as well. Things like the metadata, the number of hashes that, that are used to secure your master passwords, your email address, the, the sites you go to, all these kind of things, unfortunately, give attackers really good clues and really narrow the or, or shorten the kind of time needed to kind of crack any one individual vault. Um, so it will be interesting to see how many people stick around. I know just anecdotally, so many people, unfortunately, you know, moving to other password managers. That said, I don't think password managers are going to go away you know, anytime soon, um, we're still reliant on them. We've been kind of calling or, or, or foreshadowing the death of passwords for, again, what feels like decades. We're never quite there. It's been like IPv6, it feels like. But, you know, with Friday's pass keys coming out and being kind of rolled out slowly, um, who knows? Maybe we'll get to a point where we don't need to give away so many of our secrets, but uh, I certainly don't see it happening anytime soon. Yeah, it's an interesting point about getting away from passwords. I you know, we've been talking about using passphrases, for example, for years at this point, and how it's easier to remember passphrases than it is passwords that have upper, lower numbers, you know, exclamation marks, whatever. But the the number of times that I'll sign up for a website, probably an e-commerce site, and it's going to enforce, it's got to be, you know, more than eight characters. It's got to have an uppercase character, a punctuation mark, and a number in it. That, that message of make things easy to remember never got through. <laughs> no, exactly. This this is so frustrating. I completely agree with you. You know, I would much prefer that people use four to five word passphrases than a mediocre kind of short password that has punctuation and numbers in. You know, 
because there are very few sites that will prevent you from putting a punctuation mark or a number at the end. And yet, if you ask people to add punctuation marks and numbers, they'll probably stick them at the end. And so that's a huge clue and advantage for attackers, because I'll go through dictionary words and then just iterate with numbers at the end. But you've kind of hit on one of my little pet peeves. In fact, I wrote an article on Labs um, a few months ago now about the relative strength or perceived strength of passphrases, because clearly one of the perceived strengths is the length. And absolutely, if you have a passphrase that's 30, 40 characters because of the words, in theory, from a length point of view, that's far more secure than a 12 or 16 or 18 character password. And yet there's now evidence that there are tools out there to do effective dictionary-based attacks on passphrases. And I won't bore you with the maths. You can go and look at Lab's article if you're into that kind of thing. But when you look at the the actual kind of key space, if you like, the number of possible passwords based on the number of words that we use in the English language, on average, passphrases can be significantly weaker. You know, so it's a really interesting kind of point. I think yes, passphrases can be more secure as long as they're truly random and long enough. Um, but they're not always quite giving us quite the security that we think. Uh, but again, to your point, Aaron, you know, so many sites you go to won't let you use, you know, passwords are sometimes too long, ironically, or yeah. they, you know, they won't let you use passphrases because they have these arbitrary requirements in them. Yeah, and it and it's 2023, and sometimes you'll say, you'll click on the I forgot my password link, and it will still email you your password in the clear, which t- well, terrifies me. Do you know, I heard, we, we ha- I heard of a fascinating attack recently where the attacker was... Ty- this actually comes from a story from Darknet Diaries for anyone that kind of listens, so this I can't claim... To, to be the originator of this story. But the attacker actually, in this case, it was a pen tester, it wasn't a real attack, figured out that they could hit password reset links for an email address. Now, that in itself, you think, maybe isn't an avenue of attack. If I, Aaron, try and attack your account and I put your email address in, I don't receive that email address. Uh, I don't receive that email, so I can't, you know, what do I get it? What do I get from it? But what the pen tester realized was the website was generating a very short, I think, five or eight character password. Now, he didn't know it. Again, he didn't have access to the email, but he knew that for a period of time, the password was only five characters. And to brute force any five characters is significantly easier than what the user's password may have been, which may have been 30-odd characters. So, um, yeah, there are still many, many sites that, that haven't unfortunately thought through all the possible different attack vectors for password resets. Yeah, I've I've had sites do exactly that, right? Click reset my password yeah. and your password is one, two, three, four, or whatever. It's very short. And I've had... The thoroughly frustrating conversations with the owners of websites whose website either is going to email you the password in the clear that 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 one happened and not that long ago a couple of years maybe or email you a short password and the response you'll get these are usually relatively small companies is we've spoken to the guys that make our website and they say there's nothing wrong with this like yeah the, the yeah and that's fundamental security that's messages awesome. aren't getting through Absolutely. But that's honestly half the problem is, is I think, is just keeping up with different tech vectors. You know, I honestly don't envy website developers, application owners, application defenders, because what we considered secure, what we considered good practice 10 years ago, or even a year or two ago, probably isn't true anymore. Um, this kind of attack vector of sending out, you know, a, a short-lived and short character of five passwords, you know, who would have thought necessarily that, the attacker wouldn't have known the password, but they could have brute forced it in that small time window. And the fact that the attacker would have done it in the middle of the night when the real user was asleep to not see his email come through. So I, again, I don't envy people on the other side of the fence that actually have to protect their apps and data because there are just so many different vectors and keeping up to date with it is a really hard job. Yeah, trust me, being on the defending side is like a never-ending losing battle. One one last thing I wanted to say about that, the LastPass, and you mentioned people leaving LastPass and going to, to Bitwarden amongst other solutions, but Bitwarden is the one that comes to mind because this is, I guess, somewhat predictable. Uh, You know, a few weeks, a couple of weeks after the LastPass news, when it really started gathering steam and people started talking about moving to Bitwarden, what did you see but phishing ads in Google? So, you know, sponsored ads. When people search for Bitwarden, what you were actually getting in the ads was links to fake Bitwarden, right? Malicious code that is not Bitwarden, but that people would presumably go and download and think that they were placing their trust in in Bitwarden, but we're getting something very different indeed. Boy, and maybe someone signing up for Bitwarden at that phishing site uses their 
one pass or a last pass username and password. Yeah. Yikes. One other thing that we've seen in the news a lot recently is chat GPT. And I've done a bit of uh, poking around with that, it, mostly with Boo on Dev Central. He's been, he's been very, very much into it. And for me, uh, I look at it really more as kind of like, you know, uh, a way to very easily get my configurations created, figure out how to have something to make my Terraforms, my Ansibles, and write scripts for me, things of that nature. But I think uh, there are some other security implications for ChatGPT as well. I'm just curious how ChatGPT impacts the security landscape from your perspective. From, I mean, from my point of view, I'm kind of looking a little bit forward, you know, further forward. We, we've seen evidence, I mean, SharePoint researchers, I think only a few weeks ago, uh, find evidence on forums of attackers using ChatGPT to write malicious code, which I think was, I would say, one of the first real eye-openers, but we keep we keep having eye-opening events to do with ChatGPT. You know, we have uh, in the, in the news that ChatGPT effectively passed an MBA and effectively passed um, uh, an astrophysics exam, albeit not with an amazing score, but these kind of capabilities are insane. And the fact that it can write code is incredible in and of itself, really. But again, the checkpoint researchers found that researchers were using them to write malicious code. Now, the code itself wasn't particularly unique. It was info stealers, you know, searching your machine for documents and, and send them off to uh, a drop zone or uh, a hacker hosted site um effectively kind of encryptors or, or ransomware type tools so these tools you know this code isn't unique what is impressive and what is really worrying and a general trend we've seen for years actually is that the people the person actually writing this had zero uh, coding skills you know very very low coding skills and they didn't need any to write this kind of code so what we're seeing is a continual lowering of that barrier to entry for anyone that wants to, you know, partake, you know, down the kind of malicious threat route, basically, uh, just completely eroding that barrier. Anyone with, with zero skills can go and ask ChatGPT to give it a basic function and it will write the code. Now, there are warnings in ChatGPT that if it suspects you're writing malicious code or doing something against its terms of service, aren't allowed, it will warn you. But very rarely it's actually stopped and, you know, attackers have already found uh, ways around that. Boy, it really, it seems to empower your physical or social hackers. Give them a brand new bag of tricks almost. How about you, Aaron? Yeah, absolutely. Even, 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 oh, go ahead, David. Sorry. I was just going to say, even those, I mean, you know, the, 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 the kind of career hackers, you know, those that have, have connections in the world, you know, on the forums, whether it's dark or surface web, probably have access to this code and skills already. But as you said, Aubrey, this completely empowers like a, a brand new uh, generation, if you like, of, of hackers and hacktivists possibly that don't have the skills or connections to go and lean on to, to borrow or, or even purchase code. They can just go and create their own. Yeah, we used to talk yeah. about, you know, script kiddies who would be, they would just be reusing someone else's tools. Well, what you're saying is now they don't need to reuse someone else's tools. They can just have ChatGPT write them something that, probably does what they were looking for broadly and probably does it okay it's i think for me chat gpt is like the, the problem with it aside from the fact that it lowers the bar so much is that there's no oversight so if you're using it to write code and you don't have the the coding knowledge to understand what's coming out and let's face it if you write a lot of code with it Reviewing all of that code, even for like relatively small amounts, gets time-consuming. Reviewing that code for security problems, you know, for vulnerabilities in the code, and you can bet that that code will start ending up in commercial products or open-source projects, mm -hmm. and nobody will be keeping an eye on what's coming out and understanding what's coming out. Not to mention the maintainability nightmare, right, of... of poorly documented code that nobody understands how it works in the first place. <laughs> Someone's going to have to fix bugs in that. No, network. absolutely. And, and Phinef, we was chatting uh, with, with the rest of the lab team yesterday, and Malcolm on the team had a really good point, which is, you know, we talk about vulnerabilities in software libraries. Not good. You know, vulnerability in OpenSSL or any of the other really, really common libraries could affect dozens, hundreds, thousands of different products and software versions. In theory, though, if we patch that one library, all the other dependent, all the other uh, projects that depend on it should benefit from that fix if they update the libraries. 
that's not necessarily true of the likes of ChatGPT. You know, if ChatGPT is, and I don't know that it is, but if it were to create vulnerable code and create that multiple times for different people, there's no central library that gets used, right? That same vulnerable code has potentially been created dozens, hundreds, thousands of times. Fixing that then becomes much more difficult for anyone that is relying on that code. Yeah, I mean, there's there's a number of things that, that you know you, you start to think about. I, I think about making it easier for attackers to automate social engineering, right? Think about that for a second. Social engineering right now is a, is probably still one of the, the most high risk, high impact uh, vectors of attack, right? Because it's a it's one person talking to another person. There's no technical controls for that. Uh, there's nothing. I, uh, there's no firewall I can put in place between uh, an attacker who's going to social engineer a customer service rep or a, an IT uh, operations person. There's no. There's no firewall for that. There's no uh, endpoint security detection. It's hoping that the person that's you know targeted has the savvy. And and true story, uh, just a couple weeks ago, I got texted uh, something that said, "Oh, chase fraud alert." And it came from the number that the chase fraud alert usually comes from uh, formatted, looked like the chase fraud alert. And, uh, uh, you know, it said, you know, respond back. Yes or no. If uh, if you've gotten, uh, you know, a, 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 if you if you recognize this charge and I respond back, no. Um, then they, I immediately get a phone call, which comes from the phone number that's on the back of my chase card. OK. And I start talking to this person and they're like, and, and eventually they add, they say, well, you, I need you to text me your username and password. And then I'm like, whoa, 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 wait a second. Right. I was all the way down the road with this. And then they asked me to do something that was, I was on the phone with this person. And then I said, Hey, there's, and I said, I can't send you that. And they, and they said, well, this is the standard practice. And, and I said, no, I'm a cybersecurity professional. You'll, you should never need my password. And then all of a sudden I hear some stammering and then click. But all that is to say is that there was, that was a very, you know, sort of human intensive process there. And it almost got me as a professional, right? So it, it almost got me. So I can imagine someone who's less, you know, savvy getting, you know, getting caught up in that and having a moment where they, they end up giving away sensitive information purely by accident. Now enter chat GPT into the mix. Um, one of the things that's made application security such a high target in recent years is going away from the network layer is, is it's possible to automate a lot of probing for vulnerabilities, right? We can probe and see if there's a SQL injection vulnerability or what have you that's a, something that I should then go and, and focus on exploiting. Imagine automating social engineering at scale, right? Trying to find the vulnerable person that'll give you that information. Uh, that's that, you know, there's a number of different ways you can kind of look at chat GPT through that, uh, cybersecurity lens. Uh, but one that comes to me that, that makes me, uh, break out into a cold sweat a little bit is, Hey, social engineering is this, this really vulnerable vector, uh, that we don't have good technical controls for. And now they're, they've got a tool that can make them able to automate it at scale, finding, trying to find that one person who will take the bait. Yeah, and that's something I was thinking about earlier was, you know, ChatGPT has been trained, right? It's been trained on an enormous data set. We don't know what problems were in the data set it was trained on. I mean, that extends beyond just coding, right? All of the other data it was trained on, like you say, it's passed exams, passed them with not a great score, but that could be because the training data was off and, you know, it's garbage in, garbage out. It's... It's enormously problematic. I did ask it to write me an, uh, an episode of This Week in Security, though, and it did a pretty passable job at that. So my job got a lot easier. Yeah, no, I'm seriously considering employing it as a, as a co-author for a new articles on our, on our site. Um, the other aspect of ChatGPT, though, well, a couple actually that I find really a potential worry. You know, we're not quite there yet, but clearly with what people are already doing with it, it's probably not that far away is the ability to go and find vulnerable code. So ironically, it's not just the risk of creating vulnerable code, it's the ability to say, go and scan every single GitHub repo you can find and find me any vulnerability. And when it gets connected to the, the internet, which I believe is coming up quite soon, that could be a real problem. Now, hopefully there'll be oversight and controls in place, but again, ChatGPT isn't the only system like this that can, that can do a similar job. So that threat is very, very real. Um, something that's been causing a lot of 
very kind of keen interests. I've been speaking a lot recently around automation and bots, you know, the kind of reseller bots, uh, systems that can buy your Taylor Swift tickets before you can, that kind of problem, uh, and the kind of impact it can have to business and retail and so on. Well, a lot of the problem we've got with those automation, those bots, is they are employing algorithms and tools to make their interactions appear more human, you know, so that mouse movements look less linear and more random like a human would do. And the typing is a bit more sporadic and not so automated. Well, if you kind of take the logic of ChatGPT and the AI that we're generating and apply that to real-time interactive attacks uh, from AI-based tools, suddenly we've got a potential in, who knows, just a few months' time, maybe a year's time, where there are a huge number of automated attacks that look completely genuine. And that's the problem we've got at the moment. A lot of ways of kind of mitigating these automated attacks is to try and figure out through heuristics and interaction whether it's a human interacting with the site or some kind of bot or script. Well, when that interaction is automated but looks to be completely human, suddenly, you know, your job defending against that kind of automated attack becomes an awful lot more difficult. Well, you know, may uh, higher powers help the hacker that keeps me from my Taylor Swift tickets. I will have to break out a Loic and Hoic run on whoever that is. Moving on, though, one of the other interesting um, pieces of news that we saw really hot off the press, right? FBI's takedown of the hive, um, just to put it out there. I, I, I didn't know what this was when I first saw it. It was amazing. I mean, just going to these sites and seeing, hey, this site was taken down by the FBI in relation to, you know, the, the, the hive group. It was really kind of a, a dramatic and very, very drastic visual, I guess, for me to see you know, the hackers taken down. I'm used to seeing it the other way. I'm used to seeing um, a corporate website being taken down and I have to install a web app firewall or help a customer deploy a web app firewall to mitigate that sort of thing. But to actually see that the hack sites get taken down it is such a great thing. You guys care to elaborate on, on thoughts on this one? For me, it's, it's very exciting. Anyone? Bueller? So I, I think it's a really impressive achievement is the word I'm looking for because takedowns can be very difficult and this so legitimate takedowns, you know, there are very, there are many hosts out there who will just ignore takedown notices. So those who aren't working for law enforcement agencies can have, you know, a terribly frustrating time trying to get, get, you know, simple phishing sites removed that are impersonating their systems. So the fact that that the FBI has, you know, en masse, it seems, gone round and hacked back, uh, it's it's yeah, it's a great effort and, uh, and an impressive end. From from what I read on it, it sounded like they really penetrated really deep into that the the network. Uh, sounds like they got involved in the social aspect of things a little bit and were able to to gain a a foothold like any other, you know, uh, any other seasoned hacker would do. And I guess once you have penetrated down into the center, you should, in theory, be able to take everything out. Although that said, I'm I'm not so sure we have seen the last hive, right? I mean, there were no arrests made was another thing that I read, which is that's tough. They're still out there. Yeah, if the if yeah, the we, people are still out there, it's you know you just spring back up, right? It's just start up your infrastructure in a new place under a slightly new name, then off we go again. Retool. Yeah, that's ultimately what the FBI didn't just want to take down these services, right? That's not, that's obviously that's a goal, but that's an intermediary goal on the way to actually getting these people who are behind these services behind bars and, and unable to stand up yet another service and, you know, continue this game of whack-a-mole. So my suspicion, and, and this is, this is Brian talking, uh, not F5, not, uh, not any direct knowledge of anything. I haven't talked to any FBI agents, but what I suspect is that for as long as they were inside the hive systems and able to, you know, they did a lot of work in terms of getting decryption keys and, protecting people who had already been owned, making sure that they got, you know, the decryption key without paying them ransom. So they were, they were able to do a lot of sort of, you know, good Robin Hood style work being inside their, their systems. I think they, they went and burned this asset because 
uh, let's go take down all these servers because we've been detected, right? Um, the, the folks in the hive figured out that, that somebody was inside their systems, inside their network and said, uh, we, we need to start fleeing like roaches in the daylight. And, and so that's, you know, my suspicion is that, you know, they got detected, which, you know, happens. Unfortunate that, you know, no arrests just yet. Maybe, you know, maybe they still have a, a, a trail they can follow. But, but good on the FBI. This is the kind of work, you know, we hear about, uh, you know, we're as a, as a, you know, as a nation, as a corporate corporations in our nation, we're always being attacked by other nation states. And I hear a lot of disparaging comments uh, in, in the general population, in the media, like, why aren't we doing more to counteract, uh, you know, these cyber threats, you know, whether they're nation state threats or large organized crime units and make no mistake, a Hive was a large organized crime unit. When you're talking about hundred million dollars in ransoms that they collected over the, the period of time they were in operation. That's a that's an organized crime corporation, and so you know, great work there by the FBI showing that we have we do have good cyber capabilities here in the U.S. Uh, whether it's you know cyber warfare you know in our military branches or you know in our intelligence agencies like the FBI, we've got great cyber capability and. You know, tie it back to the security B-sides message. There's lots of different ways you can get involved in this field. We've had, you know, FBI, former FBI speak uh, at F F5 events. Um, we've had them, you know, at, at B-sides events. Uh, these are, um, I've, I've talked to a lot of active agents uh, in the FBI who are in the cyber affairs division. Um, really interesting stories uh, from the front lines of people trying to do the good work of, uh, you know, rooting out cyber criminals and, and making sure that, you know, again, make the internet a little bit safer place. Yeah, we see this time and time again, don't we? Predominantly um, with with organized crime and especially ransomware groups that kind of go quiet for a bit. They come back, they might have renamed in the, in the meantime. It might be a different group taking on the previous name. They very rarely, if ever, go away completely. I don't think they ever get to the point where they think, oh, do you know what? We've earned enough. We can retire and stop now. They're just going to keep going, and ultimately there'll be an influx of new, uh, you know, members that want to carry on and earn for themselves. Something I've kind of been saying recently, and it was in our last predictions piece we put out at uh, the end of last year, was I think the kind of increasing need for 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 geopolitical kind of pressure. And, you know, clearly the likes of the FBI and, and actual task forces that can go and do hands-on proactive hacking back fantastic and i think that needs to increase but i think ultimately the thing that's going to have the real difference is each country each nation's kind of government putting pressure and actually you know enforcing well putting pressure on these groups closing them down and enforcing kind of local uh like legal rulings and, and prison time and and so that pressure needs to kind of be mounted from from different governments onto each other uh because at the moment you know we kind of talk about cyberspace being this big open world and it's all this one big flats and it isn't it's still borders and countries with their own rules and laws and so we need other countries and and, and you know local laws to 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 put the bad guys away for us basically so david what uh now that we've covered the news a little bit what kind of things can we expect to see coming out of f5 labs over the the next month to a couple months Sure. Yeah, it's been it's been a very busy kind of time for us at Labs. End of last year, start of this year. Um, so publications have been sort of fairly quiet. We've had updates to our bots series. So for those that are interested in kind of bots and automation and how they can affect all sorts of business, we've got more articles on that. One particularly interesting one is on the ecosystem, which really breaks down in, into a lot of detail all of the different players in the kind of automation space. You know, it's not just one person with a laptop and a script. It's this whole, you know, uh, range of players from reseller bot creators to shippers to all sorts. So that's a really fascinating read. Keep your eyes peeled for the new DDoS report that will be coming out in a number of weeks. So that's going to take a look at the past 12 months worth of DDoS attacks. Um, and we'll share insights in terms of the, the types of threat vectors, the type of DDoS attack vectors that are used and the various sectors affected. But one of the big things we have coming up is a CVE-based report. We're going to be looking at the CV landscape and how that's changed over the years. There's a huge report done in Pumpship uh, with our external uh, researcher, Scientia. Um, and I mention it because as we put out the Sense Intel series that we do every month, where we look at the most common CVEs that attackers are using against our sensor network, uh, the last one was just posted, I think, a week or so ago. This report looks at the past 10 plus years of the CVEs, you know, right from the very start, and how things like CVSS scores and so on have, have changed over the years, or maybe how they haven't. So that's going to be a huge piece of work for us that we're hoping to release in the next month or so. And hopefully we'll be back 
uh, when it's released and talk about it, it's not just for the lab team, but also the report authors. So hopefully, you know, you'll be able to grill uh, us and the author and really kind of break that report down and show all the goodness from it. Fantastic. I can't wait to see it. Uh, and, you know, thank you guys for joining me uh, this month. Um, it, it's been a fun as usual. Uh, and a little bit of a, a different format for the show. Thanks for tuning in to Episode 7 of This Month in Security, where our guests were Aaron Brailsford, David Warburton, and Brian McHenry. I'm Aubrey King with Dev Central. Watch for clips all month on the Dev Central YouTube. And as always, have a great F5 day.